Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm Harry Sherrod. It's a great to see so many of you here uh, this evening at uh, Brooklands. Now, we've had many, many motorsport personalities here over the years, but have we ever had anybody as versatile as this evening's guest? He's uh, won his class several times in the REC Rally GB. He's won races at the Goodwood Revival. He's been Formula One team manager, PR guru, and of course, probably best known as a, a television pundit, Formula One, and uh, various other categories. So please give a big, warm Brooklyn's welcome to Tony Jardine. Thanks, everybody, and uh, a big welcome. Thanks for having me along, actually. I'll start with the apologies. I'm very rusty. Because with COVID and everything going on, there's been nothing to talk to, no, no gigs going on. So to practice, I took a very strange gig not long ago, a couple of weeks ago, uh, with the annual Brighton Nudist Society lunch. <laughs> and um, when they all sat down after saying grace, it was like getting a round of applause. And I hadn't actually done anything at that point. So I do apologise. And also confession time because we nicked a car from the Brooklands Museum, ran it round the track, no one saw us, and we put it back before anyone could blink the eye. So I really do apologise <laughs> about that to everybody. But um, that, you just saw that come up on the screen before now. And my partners in crime are here tonight as well. Bob Searles uh, is with us, uh, do a lot of racing with Bob. His dad, Ron, was, was uh, Mr. Cooper. He, he ran everything up there. And uh, Vivian Kitson, thank you, Vivian, for letting us drive uh, your hubby's marvellous car. Um, and, of course, Terry came all the way through his apprenticeship at Cooper. And this was one of 18 chassis he built. And those of you will recognise that as a sister car to Jackie Stewart's Formula 3 winning car when Jackie had that incredible test at Brooklands and came through. And uh, then he hammered everybody in the 1964 season, 1965, uh, off he went into BRM. But I am a bit of a mess, as you're going to find out tonight. So I was a teacher, I was a, t a truck driver, um, I was a political cartoonist in the Middle East. I was a, a media man. I worked on the inside of Formula One in, in team management. Uh, I, I worked as an engineer with, with Goodyear's and fitted tires and everything. So I'm a bit all over the place. But uh, just to explain, um, some people call me teach. Uh, because I was a teacher, obviously, but you don't know where it came from. So there's my mates at Goodyear, and um, see some of them, fantastic things. So when I arrived at Wolverhampton as an ex-teacher, the foreman told everybody in, in the workshops, he said, oh, what's a teacher want to join us for? Must be a spy. And they all went, oh, oh, oh. him, yam, be a spy. Don't talk to him. So for about six weeks, I was sent to Coventry, and I was doing all the jobs, stacking all the tyres, going on the 4 a.m.s down to Dover to pick up all the tyres and so on. And after about six weeks, I said to the former, come on, look, I'm, I'm not a spy, it's all right. Let's go and have a beer tonight. So we went down Wolverhampton to the disco, you know, and had a nice night, drinking uh, Brew 11 for the men of the Midlands, you know, very nice, having a chit-chat. And next morning, with a couple of headaches, he announced to everybody, said, right, everybody, tea break, tea break. 
The teacher's okay. <laughs> he's not a spy, and he's joining us. And from now on in, he's going to be called Teach. So that name still sticks, and there are friends of my <laughs> Formula One and racing in the audience who still call me Teach Dick Bennett. You're one of them. He only knows me as Teach. Tony Jardine, I am, by the way. I just thought I'd tell you that, in case you wanted to know. And um, I, I then worked for this guy after I'd come through Goodyear. I'd been a temporary engineer, going into the pit lane, having fitted tyres and driven the trucks around all over the place. And I got headhunted uh, by Herbie Blash, many of you know, who's the team manager. And um, Bruce McIntosh, the chief mechanic of Brabham, who's also here tonight, remembers the days well when, when I started work for this guy. Uh, you know, one minute he's, he's an absolute ogre, then he's got this incredible sense of humour. But his downfall is he's big mate of Putin's, isn't he? What did he say about Putin? I'll take a bullet for that man, he said. I like him that much. My God, I think the bullet should be uh, saved for burnt Eccles cake, as we used to use him. So when I was seconded in to help out with Gordon Murray, uh, in the drawing office, we didn't have CAD CAM stuff, I was doing all the third angle drawings um, so that there were the assembly drawings for the mechanics so you could work on the, the BT-46 and the first day I was in there on the drawing board the door comes flying open and in comes Bernie, well he was below my drawing board, he was down here somewhere <laughs> peering above his glass, he's going, he's going, what's he doing in here? He said to Gordon, what's he doing in here? He said, I told you Teacher's coming in now to work with me because he's helping out, he's doing all these diagrams. And, mm -hmm. So he came back along past my drawing board and I saw these little glasses in pieces. He said, that's all we bleep bleep need, isn't it? Another effing designer. Slammed the door and went out. So that was my introduction to such a lovely man, Bernd Ecclescoe. <laughs> Whereas uh, at Brabham, working with the legendary Nicky Lauda, still, still my favourite for so many reasons, not, not just the hero status, it, it was his cunning, it was his race craft, his, his humour was, was beyond anything that I can actually remember. But you have to, you have to think back to that, those days of 76, you know, on what happened with the accident and how brave he was, because they were administering the last rites, and, and inside he said, no, I'm not having this, I'm not having this, and he pushed those pipes further back down to his lungs to suck everything out. I mean, he was a right mess. I mean, he'd, he'd lost an ear, the, the whole thing. And yet, six weeks later, at Monza, many of us watched him with his scarred head and bleeding head, putting his crash helmet out and going back out into, into qualifying, which was, you know, an amazing performance. But man of few words. And um, what I loved, I sort of listened to Nicky a lot because you have to listen to the words. His teeth used to come like this. And he used to say, yes, okay. No, yes, Bruce, fix the thing. Okay, we go. Press conference. Everything good, Nicky? Engine good, tyres good. Thank you very much. I must go. Bye-bye. <laughs> Off he goes. So, British Grand Prix at uh, Brands Hatch. Bruce uh, and the boys, they got just near where I was working with the tyres. There was the usual tray of petrol and washing off gearbox parts. And at this time, Nicky had started to smoke these little cheroots. And he was flicking ash. And I'm going, Nicky, for Christ's sake, there's fuel in here. What are you doing? And he looked down, he flicked some more ash, and he said, I don't care. He said, I'm used to fire. <laughs> he genuinely did. And, and of course, we all just, we all, 
all just um, <laughs> fell about. But you know, to 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 lose him as we did uh, was such a terrible shame. Such a massive character of the sport. And John Watson was his teammate, but he was always outwitting John. He never knew what what. Nicky was up to. Nicky had run out of tyres at Long Beach in qualifying, called us over to the car while John was in the other car, sitting up on jacks with no wheels on, and he wanted to steal John's last set of qualifying tyres, which he did, and we gave what he never knew. Oh, where's my tyres? Where's my tyres? No, don't know, John. I have no idea. Nicky says, thank you. Good, good. We have two places further up the grid. Thank you so much. So, yeah, that, that was brilliant. And then... Um, you know, the odd get-together, the old Brabham team, and having a laugh about stuff, which, which we always used to do. But, but what I loved, he told uh, us this story about going to celebrate on the anniversary of the big accident. He went to Bergwerk at the Nürburgring, and he just took a few close mates, um, and he took a, a picnic basket and some champagne. I think there was, a, there was about uh, four of them, five of them maximum. And... Um, one of them was Karl Heinz Zimmermann, who's a famous hotelier who used to be at a lot of Grand Prix, one of his close mates. Anyway, they got to the place up in the Eiffel Mountains, nobody around, and they're just getting the champagne out. And then this little walker comes along with his backpack going along, and he goes, Oh, Nicky Lauda, Nicky Lauda, what are you doing here? He said, I'm looking for my ear, piss off. <laughs> It's true, he told, he told us that. And um, then I was going to the Brazilian Grand Prix and I got the Times newspaper and the inside of it was a massive picture of Nicky Lauda. It was all about the film Rush that was coming up and this young actor that was going to play him and, and so on and so forth. So I thought, I'll risk going up to see Nicky because he normally goes, you know, whatever. We have, we have a little laugh, whatever. But this time he said he wanted to know. I said, Nicky, look, the film was big publicity. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, this guy, this actor, Daniel Bull, who's playing you in the film, I said, is his impression of you better than mine? He, he's laughing. I don't know, I don't know. He said, I tell you, this guy, Daniel Bull, he has called me, and he said, I need to be like you, and I want to come to Vienna for a couple of weeks and stay with you and learn to do your voice. I said to him, bring a small suitcase. He said, why? I said, you won't be staying for long. <laughs> anyway, he was a good guy. He stayed for 10 days or something. At the end, I said, OK, you be me. So he was me, and he spoke to me, and I went, shit. I didn't know I swore that effing much. <laughs> um, yeah, a, a, a great character, and another great character of the sport. Uh, where we're all chums together uh, at Brabham and roommates. Charlie, I think, started about three months after me. He, he worked closely uh, with a lot of the guys uh, and went on up the tree. But he was just great at everything he did. There was no side to Charlie. And he was probably the, the best race director we ever had. Certainly better than that messy bloke who absolutely made such a aberration of, of Formula One, which many of us still haven't been able to get over uh, since that. Um, but I was then uh, headhunted to, to go over to McLaren as assistant team manager, um, because Teddy Mayer, I, I don't know those of you that might have remembered him when he was talking, 
Teddy had this strange way of talking outside of his mouth. And uh, he was a Harvard lawyer, but he was, he was very, very sharp, very, very sort of clever guy. But him and Tyler Alexander, they were sort of the directors of the team, so I was doing all the donkey work. And you did in, in the 80s, the early 80s, you did everything. And the guys did everything, you know, whether it was chassis work or going out into Buenos Aires in the middle of the night and trying to find welding machines or whatever it happened to be. But we'd been, we'd been struggling a bit until we tested this guy um, down at Paul Ricard, um, who we quickly christened Little Tadpole, which he quite liked. Um, but he didn't, he didn't like um, Teddy Mayer, and he didn't like Tyler so much, so I used to have to go and pick him up at the airport in my missus's 2CV, which he liked, and then he'd come and stay at our house. And um, I'll show you later a little cartoon that I did of him, which uh, he's hung. He said it's still in his toilet, so <laughs> <laughs> that'll do for me. Um, but again, you know, the, the M29 and so on wasn't, uh, wasn't a, a great car. Um, and then in came Ron. <laughs> um, Neil Trundle's here with us tonight, and he knows all the stories about that. And you've heard all the quotes, you know, um, second is first of the losers, and so he goes. And, and still, when, when I see him, he came in with the backing of Marlborough, and 50% of us were given the Evo, including me. And to this day, he says to me, you still saw because I sacked you. I said, no, Ron, you did me a favor. I went and did lots of other things and learned lo lots of other things uh, besides that. Um, now, that's also the favorite driver of Charlie over there. So Charlie will get uh, his autograph for you a little bit later on. No problem. But you know how fastidious, how incredibly fussy uh, Ron Dennis is, was. Uh, and when the McLaren Tech Center was being built, you know, he was up there literally every day. Certainly, if he was around at weekends, he'd be up there walking around in his wellies, checking everything out. It just meant so much to him. But, of course, everyone had to be so clean, so cleanly. And I think it was one of the first big sites in the UK where trucks that came in, the drivers had to go in and get the, the hygiene lecture and spray all their tires so no mud went up the pathways. And it was that kind of stuff which all filtered down from Ron. So you can imagine his distress when he was told that there was drugs potentially on the site amongst this massive building force. Um, so he put these signs up everywhere. And, and one of them just said, say no to crack. All it did was having a, a hundred builders pulling up their jeans all the time. <laughs> I love Ron. Well, we always get a great quote from Ron. Now, uh, having worked with Mansell, because by this time I'd become account director on, on JPS, I was working for an agency, I'd been to America doing a lot of marketing on that side, and I came back on the other side of the fence, literally, and that's where the link kind of changes. So I was account director on the JPS brand around the world, whether it was BAT or Imperial Tobacco, it was inshore power boats, it was, it was Formula One, uh, it was JPS Norton with Barry Sheen. So I was having a great old time, but I was, I was never home and it was very, very, very busy. But I've never worked with someone so miserable. <laughs> right? 
Oh, Tony, I'm not sure I want to go out today. Oh, when's this test going up? Oh, no, no. But, you know, when you get him going, and if you, if you can take all the whinging for a while, flip down the visor, send him, my God, you know, he always set the track alight. And, of course, there was always something going on. There were always incidents and accidents. By the way, isn't that a beautiful Duke Rouge car? Absolutely fabulous car with the Renault engine. And, and to be fair to Nigel, he was getting better and better, even though Peter War said that, that that man chap will never win a Grand Prix so long as I've got an A-hole. Well, Nigel did go to see him after that with a lot of toilet roll. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, he enjoyed that. But, honestly, he would be standing in the garage, and I remember at Paul Ricard, and they're pushing, the guys were pushing the, the, the car along, on the, on the, they used to use the big metal setup wheels, push it over Nigel's toe, and he's going, oh, oh, you know. So we had to carry him to the car, they put him in the race, and then he, he outbraked himself against Bruno Giacomelli in Canada, put his hand went through the steering wheel, and he broke his scaffold, and he was always whinging, and if you remember him collapsing when he was pushing the car in, in Dallas, and so on. So he was, he was basically a drama king in that respect, but he was a brilliant racer, and if you could put up with the, the whinge, great. But he had on his overalls, he who dares wins. We got hold of his overalls and managed to get one of the trucky ladies to pick it away and re-sew it. So he who dares wins. <laughs> And he never noticed for about two seasons. No, no, no. Do you like more veg, Tony? Yeah, it's very good. It's really funny. That's very much funny. Um, <laughs> uh, so that was uh, last year we were doing some stuff. So, I, you know, I still work with him. And I, he's saying, what do you do now? I said, well, I work for Hero ARA. We, we do big events like uh, Pig into Paris. Mm, you know, I quite like doing that, something like that. He'd get about three miles into the desert, go the wrong way and then whinge for the next three weeks to anyone who would listen if he could find them in the desert. But um, this, I know you've seen this before, but there's a reason for playing this, apart from the fact that Tiffany Dell was involved, and, and I'll tell you why. Now down the pit straight to Redgate Corner. This could be where he makes his move. Yeah, just listen to the crowd cheer here. They want Nigel to pass. Yes, he's out, and he's passed Tiffany Dell. He's moved up a close question to them. Cheer. They just love this guy. And he pushes Tiff out wide, and Tiff loses the wing mirror into the bargain. And Soper follows Mansell through to take fourth place. Down the Craner curves, down to the old hairpin. Mansell is right on the limit. He locks his rear wheel. The car sideways, opposite lock. It's on the curves, fighting for control. Soper goes through. He's clipped Nidell. He's off. And a huge impact. Nigel Mansell, very still inside the car. Steam, smoke. Look at that damage and fire from a brake disc. The marshals quickly on the scene. The race is being stopped. John, what happened? Well, as you can see, Nigel just locked a brake on the way into the old hairpin. It touched the inside curb there and got very, very much oversteer. Tried to correct it, maybe a little bit too much there with the lack of power steering. Steve managed to get through and Tiff braked hard to try to avoid him. But unfortunately, Nigel's hit very hard. That is an enormous accident. That is one of the biggest saloon car accidents I've ever seen. Here we are inside with Nigel, down through the crown of curves. He changes down to fifth gear, gets it on the curb, a little bit loose. Uh, uh, uh. 
So Andy, Andy Rouse, who was running the car, told me that they'd got the two wheel ready and they're going, Nigel, Nigel, are you okay? Nigel, you okay? Because you could see he was, wasn't looking good. They go, Nigel, you okay? And eventually he spoke. He said, I can't speak, I'm unconscious. <laughs> I said, Andy, that's a great line. I'm having that one for sure. Um, but Nigel's teammate was, was, was a great mate, very, very sophisticated guy, but a lovely, lovely man, uh, Elio DeAngelis. And uh, it's one of the times in my career that I was very sorry for getting too close to a guy because we really were good mates. I, I can remember being at a big sponsor dinner and there were literally three, four hundred people in this massive room and Nigel got up and said a few words and then, you know, they all fell asleep. Um, Elio, Elio got up and he told a couple of little stories but in his impeccable English. And it literally brought the house down. And he was laughing with them, and he sat down, and Nigel got me by the and he said, he's not funny, you know. <laughs> no, 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 no. So sadly, um, w when the big accident happened where he was testing um, the lie-down Brabham at uh, Ricard, I was actually on a stage with Richard Branson where we were launching Virgin Atlantic Challenger 2 at Lowestoft when the guy from Press Association came up to me and, and told me what had happened. I mean, at one stage, he came over and stayed for the weekend. I remember our little daughter was in a pushchair. We all went down the rugby club. He was pushing our daughter around. He watched us play rugby, and he was buying beers for the lads in the rugby club bathroom. And they're all going, they couldn't believe it. But he was just a you know, great man of the people. So uh, that's Peter War. Um, both him and Chapman gave me a real hard time at the beginning because I was like the agency man, the sponsor man, but eventually I got on very, very well with him. And this was the, the, the first win, the breakthrough win with Ayrton uh, in uh, Portugal, which was absolutely brilliant. And I have to say, Dick Bennett saw him sitting there now. He and I were flatmates. 33 Grange Road, as he reminded me, because he's memory man. But we were the only two non-McLaren in an all-McLaren house and there were a lot of hijinks in that house including you Dick Bennett's bringing uh, lots of stewardesses for Sunday lunch when we were there <laughs> don't go shh Terry's not here tonight I can tell her I'll tell her another time anyway don't you worry but um so th so the the Kiwis would would drink you know jugs of gin and tonic and when they were working in the workshops, they used to wear their flip-flops, which they used to call the Kiwi safety boots. It was all that stuff. Kiwis used to arrive at 3 o'clock in the morning. We'd have to let them in and all that. But what Dick did, because he'd been running OPEC, then he was starting his own F3, and being Guru Dick, running Ayrton Senna. And I'll never forget going to a race with Dick and meeting Senna in the back of the truck. I think it was Thruxton, but he'd been out just flying his little model aeroplane or whatever. And I said, um, Dick introduced me. I said, how do you do? I'm telling you. And he went, I know who you are, because he knew everybody in Formula One, where he was going, you know, what he wanted to do. Uh, but he was almost ethereal. He had that sort of mystic about him. Um, and you, you could never really get sort of close to him, but we had to go for a test down to Imola, strangely enough, sadly enough, and uh, had to go to Milan Airport. So we get there together, and the only car I could get was a tiny little Lancia hatchback 
which was about a one-litre fart machine, whatever it was. Anyway, there's a little glint in his eye, and we set off on this trip. I'll tell you what, I've never been so scared in my life. <laughs> it was phenomenal to watch, but at the same time, he was, he would, if, if the three lanes were blocked on the autostrada, he took to the grass. And if there was a gap in the toll booth, he went through the, the other side of the toll booth and so on, till eventually we got into the paddock Imola and stopped. And he just looked at his watch and he turned me and said, I have beaten the records. And I went, <laughs> But, you know, absolutely great guy and a tragedy and, and much, much missed. And also it was nice to report a couple of weeks ago, despite everything that's gone on, um, Claire Williams, uh, we had a little meeting together. She's going to re-emerge soon. And there's various things that she's going to get up to, which is nice too. Now, uh, he was my boss as the president of the BRDC when I was on the board, but I'd worked with him in a lot of his racing teams uh, through Formula Ford 2000 and Formula 3 with Paul and Paul Stewart Racing and so on. Now, for me, he is, you know, a demigod. He is just that brilliant, brilliant racing driver. But I have to say, working with him, for him or whatever is very, very, very hard work. Um, and when we all used to go to uh, Glen Eagles and have the Formula One charity event up there, we would all be putting bets on on how long his speech was going to be for all the sponsors. Because, of course, we used to go on and on and on. Well, here we are, by my Rolex watch. The time is now 8 o'clock. I plan to speak until 10, uh, 10 p.m. tonight. I'm wearing my Gates Wellington boots. And, of course, I arrived in my Ford motor car here tonight. And he's going on. I'm going, Jesus Christ. Is he still talking? Yes, he is. But he would call me at 11 o'clock at night and say, Tony, listen, I just think we need to speak a bit more about this. You know, I'd like to arrange for the cars to be arranged. And I'd go, oh, God, God. And then he go, and of course, the other things. And at about midnight, he'd go off. And then he'd say, well, I'll phone you at 5 a.m. just to check that's okay. And i go, no, Jackie, no, no, no. So anyway, I was at a sailability event. Um, at Cowes, and I'd ha I must confess, I'd had a couple of glasses of champagne, and we were waiting to meet the Princess Royal, because she was in charge of that particular charity. Anyway, she comes around to each of the groups in turn, and uh, she comes to me, and I say, oh, your highness, da-da-da-da, and you know, I know your son, worked with him in Formula One, great guy, da-da-da, and I launched into my Jackie Stewart, and I said, do you ever with Jackie Stewart when you get the calls? And, and I said, oh, Your Highness, I just, I have to hold the phone away. And, and he's still talking half an hour later. She said, do you know what? She said, I do exactly the same thing. <laughs> I said, thank God there is, there is a God. Thank you. Um, but I, I think that, you know, he is, he, is a, he is a true Scot. He is tighter than two coats of paint. He does swim under toll bridges. He... <laughs> With, with Stuart, Stuart Grand Prix, you know, it was tartan mugs, tartan hats, tartan rugs, you know, anything that was making money, of course, that was it. And, and as, as Wiley Scott once told me, he casts his bread on the waters, but only when the tide's coming in. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, the thing is, I did hear another story, which was, which was quite nice, because um, one of his original girlfriends uh, that he was, he was going out with, anyway, he took her out um, in the Trossachs nearby where, where he lived, and um, 
he was rolling around in the Bonnie Banks and Braves with his young girlfriend and getting a little bit amorous. And she said, Jackie, Jackie, stop it, stop it. You're going a bit too far, just leave me alone. And he carried on. She said, stop it, Jackie, you're cheating me like a prostitute. He said, there's no mention of money when we started this. <laughs> Oh dear. There you go, look at that. Overtartened. <laughs> See what happens is that folds out into a rug and on all the sort of tea things pop out the inside of the jacket. It's, it's very, very clever, engineered by Formula One. So this this was battleground for me, uh, and for many of us, passion, British Grand Prix. The, the center of the industry. You know, we lead the world in, in technology. We still do. The Germans have tried to do it. The French have tried to do it. That's the epicenter. And there's so many teams and so many technological companies around there and some brilliant engineers like who are in, in the room tonight as well. Bred from all of this. So everything that we did was fighting Bernie all the time. Fight, 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 fight. Even at one point, he moved the Grand Prix to Easter, and we were in the middle of the floods. And if you remember, all the car parks were awash. Everyone got their cars stuck in everything. The only bright bit about it was that pole position was in the shallow end. Um, <laughs> so I was quite happy about that at the time. Um, but you know, getting involved with the launch, with the new circuit, um, and you know, to get to where they are now. I don't know who the guy is on the right, by the way. Don't know, but we know about the guy on the on the left because once Damon Hill had taken over as our president, and um, we didn't have Jackie telling us all what to do, we had this guy who who was brilliant and still is brilliant and um, worked very well with Damon. And, and you know we've we've got stars like Adrian Newey. You know we've got we've got these incredible people, and it's worth talking about our history. And Brooklyn's protects. You know, it's history and promotes it. And so, you know, the 60 years, the 70 years, part of what I would do is bring as many of the cars and drivers back together and put on what we would call a parade lap. But it didn't turn out to be a parade lap, as you well know. Emo, for example, was trying to go for the lap record. I think at the same time was Prost was trying to crash the Red Bull. But anyway, it was all, it was all entertaining at the time. And what, what we started in a small way, um, in fact, some of the teams did it, Eddie Jordan did it to an extent, was doing the concerts. And it was very, very small, so then we started to, to build it into something that it is now. There were two things there. First of all, you've got 20,000, 25,000 people who are not all rushing to get out of the gate. You're also giving them something extra. Because under the American management now, whatever you think of it, you know where the figures are, and you know that they really are looking after the punters, which Bernie didn't do. And the ticket prices that we had to charge, because of what we were charged by Burnt Eccles Cake, meant we had to do this. And persuading the drivers to stay afterwards and come, we never got the Ferrari drivers. We always got the Brits. We always got, you know, Button. He, he was brilliant, is brilliant. And the fans absolutely loved it because we, we chat and laugh and, and have fun on the Sunday night you know, after the Grand Prix. And it's an important part of promoting because, you know, it's, it because it is also the lifeblood of sport, as sponsorship is. It's expensive motorsport, as we all know. But you've got to promote it equally. And that's what I've been happy doing over the years. And this guy has just been amazing uh, you know, for, for the British audience and for, for his incredible talent. And that's why you know, he was robbed of his eighth world title. Well, 
Okay, that's that's my uh, opinion on that. But you know, there are there are people like him. There are people like uh, the late uh, John Surtees, who who was absolutely brilliant for us and a stalwart as well. You know, for for the club. And Derek Warwick never underestimate the work that that Derek did. Uh, with so and still does with a lot of the young drivers all together. It was great seeing him at Goodwood uh, with the demonstration of the BRMs. Um, in fact, we were sort of in the drivers' changing room together, and those old overalls he's got on—they're they're a single layer. And he said to me, "Are these are these fireproof?" I said, "No." And he said, "Ah, stuff it. Doesn't matter, does it?" I said, "No, no, not really. BRM's not going to catch fire, is it?" Oh, H16 might have done, but no, you'll be fine in that one. You carry on. Um, which brings me to uh, my experience of Ferrari, because Emano Quoggi came with Nicky Lauda to Brabham. And I think Bruce was, was with me when, when we did it. He got us a tour into Ferrari. Uh, I think you, you will know that Ferrari is a religion you know, for the Italians. They don't know anything else they don't want to know anything else and it doesn't matter about the drivers the drivers just have to win they're just merely light bulbs you know it's that brand it's that it's that prancing horse it's that amazing thing and by the time tot and braun and everyone got together they internationalized ferrari and that's how they they made it such a success because you know it was british engineering it, it was you know, the, the German driver, and so it goes on. There were, there were French, there was English, Belgians, all sorts. What you're seeing now with Ferrari is they've gone back to a very, very Italian team. They've got a fantastic car. Um, can't use its tires right. They can't do strategy right. But they do need to stabilize uh, in a certain way. This, this guy was, you know, win at, win at any cost. And it's so sad, of course, what has happened to him. Uh, Mick Schumacher's there on the grid. But again, um, quite, quite a demanding guy uh, to work with, uh, understandably so. But, you know, he would, he would take no prisoners, whether it was on the track, you know, whether it was whatever. So when there was a chance for us to have the football match, the journalists against uh, the drivers, I was the only one that would try to tackle Michael Schumacher. But... Um, it didn't work out. I just ended up on the deck, and he went and scored another three goals. But uh, that's, that was how Michael Schumacher. But for me, he's a flawed genius. And the reason I say that is that you have to go back to uh, 94. You have to look at what he did with Damon Hill at Adelaide. You have to look at what he did with Villeneuve in 97 in Jerez, when he basically barged him out of the way. And probably the worst was 2006 qualifying at Monte Carlo when he'd heard that he was last one on the track in the dying moments of qualifying, he heard on the radio that Alonso had gone four tenths quicker than him. And he, was, he wasn't up on the sector, so when he came around to Ras Gas, he feigned this silly little crash and sort of put, sort of gently nudged the barriers because he wanted to get the qualifying stopped. And we were looking out the press box window and saying, I don't believe what we're just seeing don't believe that he's just done that. He denied everything, and, and of course, later on, then he lost all his points, he was sent to the back of the grid, and so on. And that's what I mean about him being a flawed genius. 
But Stefano Domenicali, who's now in charge of Formula One and came up through the ranks, uh, and particularly uh, with, with me, because I'd known him when he was, he was literally a youngster at Ferrari. He was absolutely brilliant. But he was part of that Ferrari, we win at any cost, whatever. Whatever advantage we can gain, that's what we'll do. And Stefano was watching uh, the Eurovision. I think it was on the Sat1 Italian channel one night. And he was watching this program about the disaffected youth in Liverpool and how they were getting these wheels off the cars, you know, in less than three minutes, with, just with two monkey wrenches and so on. But they were rehabilitating these uh, young scousers, these young thieves, in, in the job centre and in, in the work centre. Anyway, he thought, oh, that's brilliant. This is it. I'm off. Gets his ticket for Squeezy Jet, goes to John Lemon Airport. There he is, straight down the job centre. Finding these uh, six scousers, oh, there they are, getting back to Italy, all in the red shirts, you know. These scousers going, hey, who's that Ferrari? Who's he play for, eh? Don't play for us, does he? Oh, go on, head. So, you know, they're doing all the practicing rehearsal, and then when they do in the morning of the race, they did the final rehearsal, the, the refueling, the dumber refueling, and all the wheels off in, in less than eight seconds. Absolutely brilliant. And in the race, in comes Schumacher, fuel is in 10 seconds 20 seconds 25 seconds what the hell is going on next thing the Ferrari is sprayed silver they sold it to McLaren next door for a crate of Carlin Black Label there you go <laughs> so now there was another Schumacher that um, I really um, couldn't get on with um, and, and we did some work with him with Toyota, whatever. I just, I just felt that he was kind of like the brat of the family and Michael always went around picking up his toys and tidying up around his pram after him or whatever. And um, he, he, he had a face a bit like a twisted welly, it has to be said. But Goodwood Festival of Speed, he didn't want to go to Goodwood Festival of Speed. And he was in the back of the truck and he refused to drive the Williams up the hill. And he's, there was some sort of insurance issue. And he'd been inside the truck for something like about four hours. Was out by the steps of the truck was a young fan, a young Ralph Schumacher fan, waiting for his autograph. And with this young lad was his dad, who was quite, quite a big, meaty sort of guy. Anyway, eventually after four hours, he has to come out of the truck because they've resolved all the problems with the insurance. Ralph comes down, pushes the guy out of the way, nudges his way past the little lad, Big mistake, big mistake. Then the shit really hit the fan. In fact, it was the first case in Formula One of the fan hitting the shit that anyone has ever actually seen. <laughs> so I, but again, I, I, I just want to tell you, I haven't just worked across Formula One because latterly, my agency, all the things we did, Yamaha was a big client, so we worked a lot in round the world uh, yachting, uh, we worked a lot in football for our sins, but, you know, there's just as many politics in, in football. We worked with the you know, England Supporters Club. We worked with the FA across various campaigns. And we had two clients in one here with Camel Trophy, um, which was the world's best 4x4 amateur off-road adventure. And I spent 10 years doing this between Formula One and other jobs. And we'd go right through the Amazon, you know, the, the Gobi Desert, whatever. And you literally had to get 
everything through. But the trick was that all those different teams were national teams. And in the back of each car, then they had the journalists as well. And the journalists had to do what everyone else did. So uh, it, was, it was absolutely brilliant. Um, but I can remember being at the end of that, uh, my first one through the three weeks in the Amazon. We hardly slept because we'd run for three days, get them all out of the mud, get back into the jungle, whatever. We would be editing the films and trying to satellite them out or whatever. Anyway, I went straight from the way I went to the Canadian Grand Prix and I was on the stage um, interviewing um, Nigel Mansell, of all people. <laughs> and I felt this sort of sweat all going down my neck at the back. I thought, oh my God, I've got malaria. I've got malaria. And I was going a bit dizzy. And I could see, even worse, I could see three Nigel Mansells. was like a bit of a bloody horror story, whatever. And um, so I got through the Canadian Grand Prix and went straight into the tropical medicine school when I got back on the Monday morning. And I had all these things that had nested in my stomach, and they were running around in my stomach, and I had stuff <laughs> nesting in my ankles. So there was a price to pay for, for what happened to be um, brilliant promotions. We've also done a lot of work with bikes, uh, worked with Kevin Schwantz. We put a sponsorship, Pepsi sponsorship together with Suzuki, and BMW Motorrad were a, a big client with all their motorcycles and their racing for many years. And that's the wonderful Michael Dunlop. Just, just a brilliant rider. For the first time ever, we managed to persuade two of the German board members to come over to the TT and see what was going on. Because it was the anniversary, the last time that BMW had been with their board at the TT had been in 1939 with a guy called Sir Sergeant Hermann Meyer. And he actually won the TT on this C36 compressor bike, which was amazing. And he, he rode in his sort of uh, swastikas, leathers, and this, that, and the other, but a really nice guy. So the Germans were very keen on this, but unfortunately they arrived in practice when it wasn't going well. Now, we won't introduce you just now, because Michael's doing a little bit of his wobbly. Fix that bike, Jippo. Anyway, he won everything. He was just dynamic, and of course the Germans. Oh, Michael, yeah, Michael Donald, he's my best friend. He is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had this major party on the Sunday night, and I'll never forget this. <laughs> this German board director running around his wife fronts, absolutely smashed out of his brain. Going, whoa, whoa, whoa. But next morning he said, Ah, you must do me a favor, Tony. They wanted that bike. We had to get it, ship it over to Germany as quick as we can, and it still sits in the museum alongside the 1939 winning bike, which, which of course, was a great story, and I enjoyed it very much. But part of the media career and ITV, they decided that it's a great idea, we're going to have a studio at every race. And they had some brilliant ideas. They decided to put us on a boat in Monte Carlo, something which I've christened Das Boat since. Because on the qualifying day, all was lovely, calm, blue skies on this yacht, by the way, which didn't have stabilizers and was in the corner of the harbor. And Jim Roosevelt was saying, oh, I bet you wish you were here with us. Roddy, roddy, roddy. Race day, it was going 4-6, 4-7, and the boat was doing this. Simon Taylor came for rehearsals. He lasted five minutes, and then he was down in the belly of the ship because they couldn't even get a tender alongside to get anybody on or off. And uh, I'm, I'm just telling you this because you need to know that behind the scenes, after the race, there was so much water that even our monitors failed. And as I was talking live to six million people on six replays, I had a blank screen. And suddenly they, who were in the calm of the 
to dock on the side, you know, the production people realised, couldn't say, oh, this is the one about something. So just kept talking, just kept talking. Cameras were falling over and all sorts. So it was one of, <laughs> one of those epic TV things where people said, I was actually feeling sick because one minute they could see the palace, next minute they could see the boat next door or whatever. And uh, it's not great quality, but Jim Rosenthal, the skipper, holding it all together. And welcome back to Monaco, where it continues to pour down. Michael Schumacher has had a smoother ride than we've had on this boat for the last couple of hours. Tony Jardine is with me. We'll be talking in a moment. But what a day, though, for the Stewart team and Jackie Stewart in particular. The first World Championship points from Rubens Barrichello. What a result. OK, and we'll look to hear from Jackie Stewart in a moment. What have you made of what the Stewarts have done here, though, Tony? Because, uh, I mean, they stuck him up in the car park right up on the hill behind us, and Jackie was none too pleased about that. What a response from Barrichello, though. Absolutely brilliant. And, and the Brazilian, all the faith that Jackie has put into him, that tender, loving care that they've given this young Brazilian driver. But Jackie himself, having won here in 66, 73, in his final year in competition, it means a lot for him, because everybody knows that Monte Carlo is the Formula 1 race to, to score it and to score a second place is absolutely phenomenal imagine what they're doing in brazil now <laughs> apart from the cameras falling out yeah well around. someone died and saved that camera let's let's have a little word with jackie stewart now shall we? he's won here a couple of times but this victory would have given him more pleasure than anything i'm sure jackie you're you're almost crying it's an amazing day rubens barrichello second what a result well, I can't tell you how happy I am for Paul. <laughs> He's so emotional he can't talk to us. We'll catch up with you later on, Jackie. Well done. Brilliantly done. <laughs> so, uh, there you go, the, the smarty pants with their, their great ideas. Um, having worked with the teams and then done a lot of work with Murray, because he was always coming around to try and find the information. I was one of few that actually worked with him at BBC and ITV. So I had literally 20 years working with him. And you know, it's, it's everything uh, that we all know he is. And Morris Hamilton, who may be here tonight, maybe sneaked in at the back, uh, great journalist, but he wrote the book, incredible, along with uh, the Damon Hill book and so many others. Um, but it is a fantastic um, tribute to the guy. You know, so from the, you know, the, the early days and, and through to getting here, he always came on the stage with us afterwards at Silverstone. And, but it was the way that he would say things, because he, he literally sounded like a V8 engine. Incredible! You know, and everything he said, everything three times. Fire, 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 and it's Schumacher, off, off, off. Oh, just absolutely love that stuff. And he, he said he didn't make mistakes. It's, they were just prophecies that, that went wrong. <laughs> and uh, James Hunt, quite rightly, used to call him Muddly Talker, which I thought was great fun. But the Australian fan club, they were massive. Every time you go to Melbourne or Adelaide, they were there to mob him. They were waiting at the airport, thousands of them. They loved Murray Walker. And if you joined the fan club, you got the T-shirt, which, which said on, on the front of it, unless I'm very much mistaken, it's Murray Walker. And when they walk past, on the back it says, I am mistaken, it is Murray Walker. <laughs> um, they absolutely loved that stuff. But um, I took him to, no, we were in Canada, that's right. We are in Canada, Montreal, and we'd arrived a, a day early to, to get acclimatized, as you do. And uh, I noticed on, on the films that Gladiator was on. I said, Murray, do you fancy come to the movies? He said, oh, the pictures, the pictures. Oh, yeah, let's go to the pictures, teach, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the beginning of the 
movie or the film is this incredible battle in Germany against all the hordes of the Mongols and the noise is absolutely horrific. You cannot hear and this was all in surround sound. And in the middle of all this noise, Mary goes, Christ, teach! And it was louder than the noise of the battle. And the Canadians turn around and go, shh, Murray, shh. What he would call a cacophony of sound. <laughs> um, but, you know, look at, look at this, and then I'll talk to you in, in a little while, because you have, you have to listen to it. It's one of my favourite outtakes, because at the beginning... Damon is correcting Murray all the time. And at the end, <laughs> Damon gets snookered. Bitch, go! And Damon Hill leads it into the... <laughs> and here comes the pasta! It's a pizza, Murray, it's a pizza. Mmm! <laughs> and here comes the pasta! It... I forgot what I was supposed to be saying. There's pizza everywhere! Hill <laughs> spun his pizza through 360 degrees or even 180 degrees! <laughs> I knew it And here comes the pizza! It's a past the mar <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, Damon. We knew you'd do it in the end. Oh dear. I, I wa just keep watching that, it's so great. So, um, then in the early days, from um, radio to BBC, I never, I never sold my agency, always kept, always kept the agency, but I started doing a lot of work with IRN and then BBC, and then ended up working um, with ITV after that, and then I, I, I went back to Sky, um, and latterly I'd done the last four years, I did a lot of work in, in the Middle East, quite lucrative, you know. Um, but um, this Al Jazeera's with BN Sport because they had the rights. They don't have it anymore. But you know, we had all the big screens, all the equipment. But when I was at Sky Sports News for, I only stopped working with them about two years ago. Um, but you literally have to be a technocrat. And I'm useless with technology. I'm absolutely useless. I'm try still trying to work out how this bloody pointer works. But you're standing, you're standing up there. And all the video comes up, and you've got touch screens. And this touch screen, at one time, it just froze. And, it, and it, when it's live, and, you, and all these cameras whirring around you, and the guests sitting over there watching you. And you try to keep talking above what's going on, and then they're telling you what the solution is. And like, it's what seemed like a minute, but was only 10 seconds or so, we've got it going again. And um, I was. I said to you, I was a political cartoonist when I was in, in the Middle East because I was a teacher by day and I used to go to the newspaper at night and draw political cartoons. And then the BBC asked me to do some cartoons. Now, that's the one that Prost has got in his toilet because I spoke to him last year and he said, yeah, teach, you know, it's okay. I have your cartoon still. It is in my toilet. And, uh, and that was Little Frog or the Little Napper or Little Tadpole as we used to call him because Watty could not understand how this little Formula 3 guy just got in this shit box of a car, it has to be said, and was literally always you know, half a second or a second quicker than him just by being incredibly smooth. Did one of your mate Rosberg, because Dick ran Rosberg uh, in Formula Atlantic. There's my Murray Walker cartoon and him bursting out of the telly. And there's one which was published in Italy of Elio De Angelis, which I was quite pleased with. Um, so when I was teaching in the Middle East, um, 
obviously we weren't doing any motorsport. Well, and this young guy called David Richards, a young, he's the same age as me, David Richards, who was a co-driver at the time, said he was going to put on the Middle East Rally Championship. We went, okay, great. And um, so we used to play uh, rugby down at the oil club at Ahmadi and this, that, and that. I thought, God, this is going to be great. So I went to every importer in Kuwait trying to go into this rally. And the only people that didn't kick me out was Datsun at the time. And uh, anyway, we finished seventh overall, and that was my, my first rally and my first desert rally. So I've done a lot of rallying, um, still do a lot of rallying. And then I was in the Works Proton team, not for my driving skills, by the way. Um, <laughs> More my publicity skills, because my co-driver there was from ITV, so we got a lot of films on ITV through him. And I think there isn't a daily newspaper or a TV outlet that hasn't been alongside me in the co-driving seat, because that is my way to, to bring in the sponsorship and publicize what we're doing. So um, even, even here uh, with Pirelli, with the big campaign, and that was the Swedish rally uh, in a Subaru. But alongside me was a top sports journalist from Daily Telegraph. Now, if Morris is here, Morris Hamilton there, co-driving for me, that was in the Donegal Rally. And we'd met our car the, only the night before, which was an ex-Armin Schwartz WRC Skoda. And honestly, it was very, very complicated and very, very quick. I'd driven it around the road the night before. And that's, you can see the look on Morris's face. And he was doing stuff for Radio 5 Live, as Observer newspaper and everything. And it was a nice story for him to get back in the, in the co-driver's seat and everything. And go, Morris, I can't work this out. So I put a little sign on the roof as how I could do the launch control with each of the, <laughs> each of the little descriptions. Because our friends from Norrnan and the television, everyone, Ulster TV, TJ, what's that on the roof there? You're cheating, boy. And... Uh, <laughs> Because, and on the first stage, it was 30 seconds in intervals, and I couldn't hold it. It was on a hill. But I tell you what, what a machine. And that was a, like second or third stage. When we kept landing, we kept jumping and kept landing, I thought my head was going to go back down inside my body. It was really good. This was winning the class on uh, the Jim Clark rally. Jim Clark's my massive hero. And um, Kevin Eason, that's us winning the class on Wales Rally GB. A, he was motoring correspondent at the Times, Formula One correspondent at the Times, the coolest character you could meet, and a fantastic little co-driver, nearly as good as Morris. Never lifted his head when he was reading the pace notes and so on and so forth. And uh, he, he was actually you know, a really, really special guy. That was the deputy sports editor of The Sun. So that was one of seven Arctic rally campaigns. Now, that is a rally. One year we did it in minus 40. It's absolute adventure on the spike tires, the whole thing. I've only crashed there once, and I think that's quite good for me. Um, that uh, is the deputy sports editor of the Mirror. And unbelievably, he came back for more because I'll show you a shot in a minute. I put him in hospital in Belgium. And yeah, I know. But he's got to be, he's got to be doing well and reading the notes well because that, the stages are very, very fast. And you just they're all tree-lined. So we were flat and fifth in the Subaru there, and I trusted him, and I, I still trust him, because he turned into be a re really good co-driver. Whereas Bob McKenzie from the Daily Express was always throwing up, and that's, that's why he's got his notes up there, so he didn't splash me. Um, sorry, sorry about that. Now, th this is another brilliant sports person, but Amy Williams, MBE, who I persuaded to come co-driving with me, 
and you see Sir Chris Hoy here on the left and Jimmy McRae, they all got behind her and got behind the programme. That was up in Scotland when we were doing promotions. And so I know how, how that girl won a gold medal. She was absolutely brilliant. And the whole WRC world took to her. She worked her way up, went through all the national rallies, learned her craft. She was very, very humble. Uh, but she got it and she understood it. She's still a great mate today. And on that final day, we were vying for the Group N, uh, the win in the Group N at World Championship level. And there were three cars all within five seconds of each other. We had two punctures, but they were on the road. But we were going to get penalties if we were late. And I was, I'm a, I'll put my hand up, so I was losing it a bit and getting a bit annoyed and upset. She calmed me all down, but we went into all the drill, changed them each time. And the last stage wasn't in the forest. It was round the Great Orm in Clandidno, under the rocks, on mud and snow tyres. And it was slippy as hell with big curbs and then the Irish Sea just down there. And we won um, Group N. We won the production class by two seconds. And uh, honestly, I, wouldn't have, I couldn't have done it without her because the, the whole thing of the navigator and you know, co-driver, as they call them, even on the opening night in the dark through all the stages in Betsy Code, she was, she was on it. She never missed a call on anything. She was absolutely uh, sensational. So, yeah, we did have a big party. And she's still um, a great mate today. Um, she was on Question Sport, I think, the other night as well. Um, there, um, Bob Searles, Charlie, look up. Is he still awake, by the way? Are you awake? All right. There's your car on screen. Come on. Hello. Anyway, um, with Charlie Mitchell and Bob Searles, who's got an amazing collection of cars. He's a big Brooklyn's man. Uh, he took his bobtail out in the demo uh, two weeks ago um, when Vivian Carmi let, let me use the Cooper. Um, but... These are, I'm just flicking through some of the fantastic cars that I've had the privilege to race. Um, I, th I think we finished ninth in the TT at that Cobra. Again, uh, that's Bob's Aston. No power steering. Paddock Hill at Brands Hatch. Is, it's like a truck. Um, but I've certainly... And then with the A35, which we, we eventually tamed it and stopped it, bringing the inside wheel up all the time. And uh, we ended up winning. And that's Fitzpatrick and Bell behind me. I'd got past them in the wet because I couldn't cope with them in the dry, but in the wet, I could get past them um, for the win. And that's me just going past Fitz. And he, doesn't, he never liked that. Uh, in fact, we never really got on. But for once in my life, I won and I didn't crash. Hurrah! Well done, TJ. And look what I got. Look at the prize. Sorry, sorry ladies. Uh, yes. The Anglia, love the Anglia race. Oh, that's Mrs. Jardine. You mentioned her before. She said, can you put a picture up of me? So I thought, I better had. Uh, that's, that's the famous JJ. And she's like our car race number, 44 years we had on Monday. So that's not bad. Um, we raced minis. Uh, that was the black 835. And then just, just a great guy. Um, did a lot of work with Sterling, with television programs. Then we did a couple of cruises together, which was absolute riot. So, you know, we all know about the legend uh, that he was, and just, just a smashing, smashing bloke. But as I get to the end, I just want to tell you this about Goodwood. Only at Goodwood, I think, this could happen, because my dad <clears throat> was a pilot in the Second World War in uh, Fleet Air Arm in Swordfish. And he, he did signed on underage like a lot of the the lads did, whether it's Army, Air Force or whatever, 
and he took him on at 17. He went straight to train in Canada and came back, and they literally put him straight on this old aircraft carrier and sent him on the Arctic convoys, aged 19. And that's a picture of old man. I mean, I, apparently my mum said, I'm the spit of the old man, but we got his badges and everything. Five years ago, a swordfish flew in at Goodwood to go on the static display. I went, oh, I've got to go and see this. I went to see the guys from the squadron from the south coast to look after it. And that plane had been on his aircraft carrier. And he said, they said, if we can find the logbook, we can tell you if your dad's flown his aircraft. But of course, I didn't, you know, his logbook has long since gone. But we did a big picture of me in the plane, in, in the old flying suit and everything. And unfortunately, because I'm spitting with dad, I gave it to mum at Christmas and said, this... Uh, plane was on dad's ship because when she opened it she went Woo! there was a lot of tears quite quite naturally that so we won the um semi-lightweight class last year in the legends with the e-type uh, now now that harry is a genuine belfast team uh so much so that the engineer i can't ask all the words saying tony he has changed around those springs in the back i'm waiting around about i don't need jesus whatever just do whatever you want, Gerard. I'm sure it'll be right. I'll show them on the website. There's another of Bob's great cars. What a lovely shot. C44. Now, sorry, Charlie, but we were winning at Alton Park, and your suspension broke. You're going to say, because I ground it out in the curb. Yeah, all right, shut up. Um, that's Chris Harris from Top Gear behind my Jaguar in qualifying, right? He kept giving me love taps two laps, then he dived down the inside of me, spun in front of me, I had to veer off to go, and then he joined the track again in front of me. I found him in the driver's club afterwards, and he was trying to run away from me. And I said, look, I said, it's not my car. You know, I, blah, blah. Anyway, I had a bit of a shout up with him. Um, great driver, good bloke. Um, getting to the end of the stories, I watched the first Chevron um, win the Guards Trophy at Alton Park, um, many, many moons ago, I'm trying to remember the year it was. Anyway, it was black then, and uh, Bennett's had, had got all the car, and it, it won. It was driven by a guy called Digby Martland, and he beat all the E-types, and we were watching as little lads. Anyway, Kev, Kevin Kivlothan calls me, he says, I've got this Chevron, why don't you come up and race it with me at Alton Park? And I got there, and on the side of it, had Digby Martin's name. I said, Digby Martin's this? He said, yeah, it used to be his car. I said, no way. So the car that I'd watched like 50 years before, I was then going to race at Alton Park. So I called my mates who are still around and have been with me then. And they came up and, and watched us race. And, and we, got, we got third in the, I think it was in the two-litre class. But my God, what was it? it was a two-litre like BMW Formula 2 engine in that. It was just unbelievable, phenomenal. Yes, yeah, so that was when I put the sports editor of the uh, Daily Mirror in hospital because I barrel rolled eight times in Belgium. And credit to the Belgians because within... Five minutes, the safety helicopter landed. Because as it was going over, I knew what was happening. And I could see the blue bit at the top and the brown bit at the bottom as the windscreen got spidered, but more and more smoke coming. Poor old Des didn't know. And you'd hear the air coming out of his body, like in a sort of washing machine effect. And then when we finally came upright and I could see the blue at the top, he was like so... I thought he'd, he was a goner. Anyway, I couldn't get out. And these guys came, got us out. And um, they airlifted him to hospital. When I called the sports desk, they said, is he still alive? 
I said, yeah. They went, oh, that's a shame. Um, <laughs> but I said, um, so what, what do you want? Oh, you've got to get some pictures in the hospital. So our team manager, French team manager, got in with the photographer, talk, sweet talk the nurses. And he was on one of those, you know, flat things in a brace and the whole thing. And uh, he heard the motor driver, the camera, going, gee, 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 when you bastards, you anyway, That picture appeared on the back page lead, full of color of the Daily Mirror next day, with him like that. And beautiful graphics of the car. In the, but you could read all every sponsor. The sponsors were ever so happy. <laughs> and especially it was insurance, because I said in the quote, and the first thing I did was in call, call my insurance company. Yeah. Never missing a trick. Uh, this was Peter Todd. And um, Peter, Peter was a well, she, yeah, page three model, uh, but I put her off on Wales Rally GB. Her husband is Mark Cavendish, the cyclist. And actually, she was, she was pretty damn good, actually, at all what she did. Um, that's where Fitz and I came to blows. In fact, he'd just finished rolling, and he ended up alongside me. I was the right way up, and he was hanging in his belt, swearing at me from the other side. So I thought it was best to get out of the way quite quickly. That was a little off I had on uh, Roger Albert Clark last year. Um, we got it back on and enjoyed ourselves. This is what I currently do. Uh, I'm communications director for Hero ERA, and I've left some booklets out at the back. We also have a lovely thing called Net Hero as well, which is carbon offsetting. So all our events around the world, and the guys are just setting out from Lima to go all the way to Cape Horn with about 55 cars on Saturday morning. Um, we've just finished going right through the Sahara. Um, John Lomas is with us, I think, from Blue Diamond Rally. John's done lots of our events with his wonderful vintage rallies. And he did Hero Challenge 3 recently. I was a skeptic, I have to tell you, because as a stage rally man and as a racer, what's this regularity rallying stuff about? Average speed, oh, 20 miles an hour here, this, that, and the other. Oh, God, you better believe it. It is so complex, the navigator's job, keeping to these speeds and going all these windy roads. They're the most remote roads they can possibly find. And it's about average speed, and they've got the maps, they've got the road books, and the navigator's saying, you're 10 seconds down. You don't know where the controls are, and you're trying to get to the controls on zero. So you know if it's all staking up the hill like that, you've got to go like hell. And when you're 20 seconds down, and you're trying to go for it, and then they do tests, and we did stuff in the middle of the night. So I did Le Jog, which is their big endurance one from Land's End to John and Groats, and it was ice and snow the whole way. Oh, my God, I was racing with 911s in the middle of the night, and goodness knows what. Anyway, I made it. That's my friend, the piper, in case you don't know. That was me. And uh, this is some great shots from uh, Classic Rally New Zealand, which we did. Uh, fabulous, fabulous. Look at that in the South Island. Just gorgeous, and we, we got Heelys, Mustangs, all these incredible uh, rally cars that we take around. Peking Paris is our biggest, and we have a lot of Pioneer cars, and that's like you know, the original um, winning car, the Itala, um, and that, that English guy totally recreated it, and he made it, but I just, that's my favorite shot, because it, it says everything about a, it's literally a two-month two event, and it's, it's a massive, massive event. You know, um, Bentleys and things were all over. This mad American has got his E-type. He's done Paris to Peking. That's me, um, Rally Avenger. So I've gone full circle now. I've actually got an historic uh, car because one of my first cars was an Avenger, which I absolutely love. And I'm going to 
build that back up and do RSC rally. And I'm off to New Zealand in three weeks' time to go and rally in the Silver Fern rally down there. Um, that was the Jag, the original Jag. But this, this is, I just want you to listen to the engine because the engine's been rebuilt twice. And now, although the clutch was slipping here, listen to the noise. Volume up. Hillman Avenger. What about that? Bloody hell. Bloody hell. So, and then I, I love my cars as well. So, that's my 970 Cooper S. Uh, this is my Lancia Fulvia, which I equally love. And my new four car garage is nearly finished. Here's my favourite driver of all time. Can't get, leave you without putting the late great JC up there. And finally, Harry Sherrard. Brooklyn's organizer, a great rally driver. He has done some of our rallies together with Mrs. Sherrod. And they've had podiums before, but this is the first one for Morris Hamilton, the journalist I told you about. And they did bloody well. And uh, he brought the Audi out, so I was really, really pleased with that. Listen, I hope you've enjoyed it. And I'm sorry I've kept you a little bit. I get a little bit excited and carried away, but thank you very, very much for having me. Well, what, what, what can I say to an absolutely marvellous uh, speech, as you can uh, see from the uh, very generous round of applause. Ab absolutely brilliant, so thank you very much indeed. Actually, there was another one of my cars in your show, that little Sunbeam Rapier that was at the, in the Goodwood Revival. That was, that was my car, I raced oh. that car, the Revival as well. So there were two of my cars in your presentation. Um, very, very uh, comprehensive chat, obviously, about uh, Tony's career. Do we have any questions? Good evening, Teach. Cast your... <laughs> Is that you, Ted? No. <laughs> it's George. Oh, it's George. Hi, George. <laughs> Cast your mind back to 78, 79, prior to you being a member of Fish It, which was Formula One superhuman truckies. Okay. You was team manager at McLaren's, and you were one of the first people to introduce clothing for mechanics when they turned up at the airport. <laughs> we turned up at the airport with our bomber jackets and our Britannia jeans and, and sandals and jandals. Um, and we all look like Wallace Arnold coach drivers. Sorry, what was that question, George? Um, um, yeah. <laughs> George, I'll just, I'll just add something there, because um, George was one of the mainstays at McLaren, and he, he used to do all the signage. He got involved in so many things and would come with us on trucks. And, and, and he worked, worked through McLaren for ages and ages, and then get involved with fabrications and so on. And he's he was part of the A team, and you were one of the guys that, that welcomed me in, and you didn't mind me bossing you around, did you? Only when I made you wear those jeans with the flowers on the back. <laughs> nope. All right, okay. Well, Tony, that was absolutely fantastic. So, um, as I said at the start uh, in my introduction, you have to be the, the most versatile um, motorsport personality we've ever had here in your uh, your talk. Certainly uh, lived up to that. So, thanks everybody. Big round of applause for Tony Jardine.